Good morning. Take your Bibles and let's turn together to Matthew chapter 3 for a starting point. Matthew chapter 3. The context is the baptism of the Lord Jesus. Matthew chapter 3 and verses 16 and 17 is where we're going to begin. Matthew 3, 16, the baptism of Jesus says this. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened. And he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Last week we began a new series of messages called Unsolved Mysteries. And we are exploring the unsolvable mysteries of the Christian faith. And today we're going to step into the granddaddy of them all. The biggest, most glorious, most majestic mystery of all. That is the the doctrine of the Trinity. The mystery of the Trinity. Now, the word Trinity is not in the Bible, but the Trinity is in the Bible. And uh, we don't really have any specific texts that communicate the Trinity or teach the Trinity. Jesus didn't teach any parables that dealt with the Trinity. We don't hear Peter preaching about the Trinity. Paul didn't write about the Trinity in any of his letters. But what we do have is a lot of incidental evidence and here and there, we get glimpses and pictures, and, and, and so we can kind of synthesize all that evidence into what we might call the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, the word Trinity comes from the Latin Trinitas, and it just means threefold or threeness. And so when we talk about the Trinity, we're talking about the threeness of God, or more precisely, the three-in-oneness of God. The three-in-oneness of God. Let me just warn you right now, it's impossible to understand the Trinity. It is a mystery. It's the mystery of mysteries. It is unsolved. It's unsolvable. But we don't have to understand it to believe it. Listen to what Martin Lloyd-Jones said about this. He was a a physician turned preacher uh, in London. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote this. It is, in a sense, talking about the Trinity, it is, in a sense, the most exalted and the most glorious of all doctrines, the most amazing and astonishing thing that God has been pleased to reveal to us concerning himself. We cannot hope to understand it. We cannot hope to grasp it with our minds. It is entirely beyond us and above us. We are simply meant to look at it with wonder, with awe, and with worship, and be amazed at it. He goes on to say this, that the the Trinity is the greatest mystery in the Bible and in the Christian faith, the most exalted and the most sublime truth. May I beg of you, do not try to understand all this with your minds. It is for us humbly and as little children to receive the truth as it is revealed, to stand in worship and adoration and amazement. It is beyond us, but it is true. That's That's a good introduction to the mystery of the Trinity. If you have your bulletin, there's a listening guide on the back panel. And as we said last week, this is going to be a different kind of series for us. And we're not really dealing with a text this morning or in, hardly in any of these various passage, uh, mysteries. But we're not dealing with a text today. So today's message is really not text-driven. It's more outline-driven. And that's really weird for me and for you. So this is a total different thing. And as we think about the Trinity, I'll, I'll tell you right now, this is a different kind of a message. It's very cerebral. This is heady stuff. But hang on, there will be an application to our daily lives. So hang on, and we're going to cover a lot of stuff real fast. We're really, I'm trying to give you a, just try to do it for the sake of sermonic brevity, try to do a lot in a little bit of time, and we're just going to skim the surface. So if you want to go deep, if you want to do a deep dive in in any of this, I can recommend some good theology textbooks, and you can knock yourself out. (laughs) But for this morning, let's just try to cover a lot of ground. So here we go. So if you have your listening guide, I hope you'll follow along. Let's start, first of all, with a definition. What are we talking about when we talk about the Trinity? Well, the Trinity, simply stated, is this. God is one. 
God is one. He is one being, and at the same time, God is three persons. God is one being who exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And these three persons, there's no division of nature, essence, substance, or being among the three persons. So God is one. He exists in three persons without any division of nature, essence, substance, or being. Not three different gods, no. (laughs) And not parts of God. God the Son is not part of God. The Holy Spirit is not part of God. There are three persons, but one being, one being three persons. Okay, is your head hurting yet? You starting to get a headache? Hang on, it's coming. (laughs) I mean, this is a mystery, isn't it? Well, let's look at some of the biblical samples, if you will. Again, there's no real text that deals with the Trinity per se, but we do have evidence along the way. And it's mostly a New Testament revelation, but we do get glimpses of the Trinity in the Old Testament. For example, in the very first uh, verse of the Bible, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The word God there is Elohim. The Hebrew word is Elohim, and that's a plural noun. It's the plural form of God. Uh, The basic generic word for God is El, and Elohim is plural. So in the Hebrew Old Testament, Elohim can mean gods, or it can be a title or name of God. Now, that in itself does not teach the Trinity. And Hebrew scholars will say in the context of, of the Hebrew language, there's the plural of majesty and all that. There are explanations for that plural name. But even then, in light of the New Testament, while we know about the Trinity from the New Testament, we can go back even to that and kind of go, mm-hmm, <laughs> plural, eh? There you go. Then we also have this strange use of plural pronouns. In Genesis 1, verse 26, God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Well, that's strange. And then over in chapter 3, the Lord said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, and, and knowing good and evil. In chapter 11, at the Tower of Babel, God said, Come, let us go down and there confuse their language. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah said, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who shall go for us. Now again, none of those passages really teach the Trinity per se, but in light of what we know from the New Testament, we can go back and kind of go, uh-huh, uh-huh. Hmm. <laughs> and then we also have in Genesis 2.24, it says that uh, for this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And that, the word one is echad, one. Unity. So there we have Husband and wife, two people joined into one life, one flesh. The same word is used in Deuteronomy 6 when it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Same word, unity. So there's this unity. As as man and wife are plural, yet they are united into one, we also see that plurality and unity in the Godhead. Again, it doesn't teach the Trinity by itself, but it's kind of a glimpse of it. And then there are some strange verses where it seems like God is talking to himself. In Psalm 110, for example, Psalm 110, verse 1, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now the writer of Hebrews, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, "Uh uh-huh, that's the Father talking to the Son. When did God the Father ever say that to one of his angels? No, but he said to his Son, and he quotes that verse and some other verses like it. So that's just kind of a sampling. B.B. Warfield was a theologian of yesteryear, 
And he said, you know, the Old Testament is kind of like a fully furnished room, but dimly lit. And if you come into that room and you turn on the lights, you haven't added anything to the room. You're just revealing what was already there. And he says, that's kind of the way the Trinity is in the Old Testament. He said, the mystery of the Trinity is not revealed in the Old Testament, but the mystery of the Trinity underlies the Old Testament revelation. And here and there, almost comes into view. In other words, we get glimpses of the Trinity in the Old Testament. But we really see the Trinity in the New Testament. For example, where we started in the baptism of Jesus in Matthew chapter 3, we have the Son being baptized, the Father speaking from heaven, and God the Spirit descending like a dove and lighting upon him. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in one time, one place, at one event. Or in Luke chapter 1, the angel said to Mary, the Holy Spirit shall come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. So there we have the Holy Spirit, we have the Most High, God the Father, and God the Son, the Son of God. 2 Corinthians 13, the grace of the Lord Jesus. Paul writes, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So there's the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in one breath. In John chapter 14, Jesus says to his disciples, I, here's God the Son, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. Then in verse 26, he says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. So there, John 14, we have the Son, we have the Father, we have the Holy Spirit. 1 Peter chapter 1. In 1 Peter 1, Peter describes his readers as having been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, sanctified by the work of the Spirit, and obeying Jesus Christ uh, and, and sprinkled with his blood. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all in one breath, one place. So those are just those are a few examples. And again, if you want more of that or if you want to go into a deep dive in any of those passages, Knock yourself out. <laughs> there, are, there are books that can help you with that. But that's just kind of a, a brief sampling, if you will. Now, let's talk about keeping it straight. When we come to the mystery of the Trinity, I want to give you five facts we have to keep upright at all times. It's kind of like, have you ever seen you know, the circus act, the guy spinning the plates on sticks? And you have to go back and you have to keep all the plates spinning, at the, you know, keep them all going. That's kind of how it is with these five facts. We have to keep them spinning all at the same time. And they might seem contradictory. It seems like, well, how can that be? You've got to keep them all going at the same time. Uh, this is the mystery of the Trinity. Let me give you these five facts. The first fact is this. God is one. <laughs> there is one God, and God is one. One, we heard Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. In 1 Kings 8, the Lord is God and there is no one else. God said in Isaiah 45, 5, I am the Lord and there is no other besides me. There is no God. In 1 Timothy 2, 5, there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So there is one God and he is one. One. So there's the first fact. We've got to keep that, keep that operating, keep that upright. Here's the second fact. God is three persons. God is one, but now also God is three persons. Theologians love that word person. Personhood implies intellect, volition, and emotion. The, the ability to think, choose, and feel. That's, that's personhood. And 
each member of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they are persons, and they are distinct persons. The Father is not the Son, the Son's not the Spirit, the Spirit's not the Father. So they are three distinct persons. Now, when it comes to personhood, we don't really question the personhood of God the Father. Think, feeling, and action, uh, choice. We don't really question that. That's kind of a given. Uh, the personhood of Jesus Christ, that's not really an, a matter of debate. We'll just read the Gospels. He was a person. But what about the personhood of the Holy Spirit? Is the Holy Spirit a person or is the Holy Spirit an impersonal force, just the power of God? Well, let me give you the short abbreviated version, uh, the abridged version, if you will. The Holy Spirit searches and knows things. The Holy Spirit searches and knows things. 1 Corinthians 2 tells us that the Spirit searches all things, even the things of God, and that the Spirit of God knows the thoughts of man and the thoughts of God. There's intellect. The Holy Spirit wills or chooses. He has volition. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12 says that the Holy Spirit gives gifts as he wills. He sovereignly chooses what spiritual gifts to give to what believer. And so there's volition, the power to choose. And then the Holy Spirit can be grieved in Ephesians chapter 4. So there's emotion. So there's your personhood. Add to that, he leads believers in Galatians 5. He intercedes for believers in Romans chapter 8. So the short version is, yes, the Holy Spirit is a person. So God is one. Fact number two, God is three persons. Fact number three, each person in the Godhead is deity. That is to say, fully God. Each person, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is deity. Each person in the Godhead is fully God. God the Father is God. Well, duh, that's easy. No, we don't doubt that. God the Son, Jesus Christ is God the Son. Jesus is God. He is God the Son. Now, that's really a, that's, that's a whole other sermon. Literally, we're going to come back and look at the incarnation. But Jesus Christ is God. He is God the Son. So that's a whole other, that's a whole other time, a whole other day. But for now, bear with me. Jesus Christ is God the Son. What about the Holy Spirit? Is the Holy Spirit God or just the power of God, just the force that comes from God? Nope, the Holy Spirit is God. Here's the short version. Acts chapter 5, Peter says to lie to the Spirit is to lie to God. To lie to the Spirit is to lie to God. As you read the New Testament, you find out the Holy Spirit... Has, possesses the names of God, the attributes of God, performs the works of God, and then is associated with God in, in various Trinitarian formulas, like in the Great Commission. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So all that says the Holy Spirit is God. So we have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They are all fully God. Not three different gods, not three parts of God, they are all fully God, each one. And then the Trinity is eternal. Here's our fourth fact. The Trinity is eternal. God has always been God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit have always been. God the Son didn't come into existence 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem. No. God the Son became flesh and dwelt among us. 2,000 years ago, 
but God the Son has always been. Or Jesus didn't become God the Son at his baptism. That's a false teaching as well. Nope, God the Son has always been. Hebrews 1, Colossians 1, John 1 all tell us that Jesus Christ is God the Son and he is eternal. The Holy Spirit has always been. He is the eternal Spirit of God. And even in Genesis, in Genesis 1, the Spirit of God was there moving over the, over the face of the deep, the faces, the surface of the waters, even at creation. So that's our fourth fact. The Trinity is eternal. God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have always been. And then here's our fifth fact. Each person in the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, the Holy Spirit, each person is equal and of the same essence. And... No person in the Trinity is superior or inferior to any other person in the Trinity. They are all equal and of the same essence. Now, on your outline, I put two big old crazy terms, ontological subordination and functional subordination. I just bet when you were coming to church this morning, you probably had this conversation. What do you think Brother Jeff's going to talk about today? I don't know. But I sure hope he talks about ontological subordination because that sure has been worrying me this week. (laughs) What, what in the world? All right, subordination, subordinate, you know that term, that just means to be under, right? At work, you're either, you either are a subordinate or you have subordinates, or you may be both, but we have subordinate superiors. So to, to be subordinate is to be under someone or something. Ontological, that just means being, existence, by nature. Ontological subordination is heresy. So you write that in your blank, heresy. Ontological subordination is heresy. Well, what does it mean? Ontological subordination suggests that, any, uh, that members of the Trinity are subordinate to other members. That the Father is more than the Son, greater than the Son, more powerful than the Son, more whatever than the Son. And that the Spirit is less than the Son. So there's inequality in the Godhead. That's ontological subordination. That's heresy. That's a false teaching. However... The Bible does show functional subordination. So while the members of the Trinity are equal, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they are equal in essence and in being, there is a member of the Trinity can be for a time functionally subordinate to other members of the Trinity. For example, in his earthly ministry, Jesus, God the Son, was functionally subordinate to the Father. Now, equal to the Father, same in essence as the Father, but Jesus Christ prayed to the Father, he obeyed the Father, and he subordinated his will to the will of the Father. He said, you know what, I didn't come here to do my thing. I'm not here to do my will. I came to do the will of him that sent me. Notice that the Father sent the Son. And, and in the garden prayer, Jesus prayed, not my will be done, but thy will be done. There's a functional subordination. Father and Son equal, but the Son subordinated his will to the Father. And then we read about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, he he is functionally subordinated to the ministry of God the Son. The Father sent the Spirit. We don't read about the Spirit sending the Father or the Son. The Father sent the Son. The Father sent the Spirit. The Son sent the Spirit. And the Spirit testifies of the Son. You could also say this, that the Son glorifies the Father. The Father glorifies the Son and the Spirit points to the Son. (laughs) So there is a functional subordination. Not ontological, but a functional subordination. Here's the next fact. The the, the, the Trinity is an incomprehensible mystery. 
It is incomprehensible. It is a mystery we'll never fully understand and we'll never completely figure out. But those are five facts we need to keep, keep in operation, keeping them upright all at the same time. And when it's all said and done, that's a mystery. It is mysterious. Wayne Grudem said this, It should be said that the Scripture does not ask us to believe in a contradiction. A contradiction would be, there is one God and there's not one God. Or God is three persons and God is not three persons. Or even God is three persons and God is one person. Those would all be contradictions. But to say that God is three persons and there is one God is not a contradiction. It is something we do not understand and it's therefore a mystery or a paradox. But that should not trouble us as long as the different aspects of the mystery are clearly taught by Scripture. For as long as we are finite creatures and not omniscient deity, there will always for all eternity, be things that we do not fully understand. Well, there you go. Or I like what St. Augustine said in the, fourth, in the fourth century. If you can comprehend it, it's not God. <laughs> if you can comprehend it, it's not God. This is a mystery. Now, that leads us to some wrong turns. With this mystery of the Trinity and some of these other unsolvable mysteries we're going to be looking at, we want so hard to fix it. We want to solve the mystery when there is a paradox, when there's a tension, when there's an apparent contradiction. We want to fix that. We want to resolve the tension. We will make the contradiction go away, and we want to fix it. But when we try to fix things, we, tend up, we end up tearing things apart, and, and we break stuff. Same thing is true with the doctrine of the Trinity. This is a mystery. There's, there's a tension there. There's a paradox. And when we try to solve it, we end up breaking things. Let me give you four major errors, that uh, heresies basically, false teachings that come from trying to fix the Trinity. One is tritheism. Tritheism just means three gods. Three gods. God is one. He exists in three persons, but he's not three gods. One God. There's only one God. Besides him, there is no other. Now, even in our, in our Trinitarian theology... We tend to think and talk and act like we serve three different gods. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. But we need to be careful. They're not three gods. They're three persons, one God. It's mysterious, but no tritheism, one God. The other mistake is modalism. Here's a wrong turn, modalism. Now, there's different kinds of modalism and different titles for these different versions on the same theme. But modalism basically says this, that there aren't three persons... There's one person, one God, one person, but God has revealed himself or he exists in different modes or different roles at different times. For example, we might say, well, in the Old Testament, God was the Father. And in, in, the, in the earthly ministry of Jesus, he revealed himself as, as Jesus, the Son. But now today, he exists as the Holy Spirit. So it's not God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit all at the same time. No, it's one person who reveals himself or acts out different roles at different times. He may or may not go back and forth in between those roles and so forth. Well, that's a false teaching. There is a major Pentecostal denomination that teaches a form of modalism today. And they just say Jesus is all of that. It's all Jesus. That Jesus is the Father, Jesus is the Son, Jesus is the Holy Spirit. It's just Jesus. That's modalism. And what do you do with texts like Matthew chapter 3? No, we got the Father, Son, Holy Spirit all in one place at one time. What are you going to do with that? You know, that's a false teaching. Uh, 
And then we have another wrong term, Arianism. Arianism, I'm just going to use that as a catch-all term, basically. Arianism, one denies the deity of Jesus Christ. That's one way of solving the mystery of the Trinity, just take away the Trinity. So now Jesus is not God the Son. He might be the Son of God, whatever that means to you, but he's not God the Son. Jesus isn't God. Well, now you don't have a Trinity. And if you deny the personality of the Holy Spirit, it's just the power of God, the force of God. Now you don't have a Trinity, mystery solved. So now we just have God, and you got Jesus, and you got the Holy Spirit, no Trinity, no problem. Well, the problem is you just violated Scripture. Now you have no Trinity. Uh, there's a major cult. They come knocking on your door a couple times a year. That's what they teach, uh, a form of Arianism and so forth. And then another mistake, another error, a wrong turn would be subordinationism. And that is to say the Father is greater than the Son, Son's greater than the Spirit, Spirit's less than the other two. And we already touched on that. So those are some wrong turns. Watch out for those things. Well, let's talk about analogies now. The problem with analogies. For, the, for millennia, people have tried to come up with illustrations of the Trinity. How do we explain this? How can we conceptualize this? How do we illustrate it? How do we communicate the Trinity? And we come up with all kinds of analogies. Here's the problem with analogies. When you're talking about God, especially the Trinity, they all fall short. None of them work. As soon as you say God is like, well, now you're already in trouble. You're already in a mess because God's not like anything. There's your outline. God is like nothing. And nothing is like God, especially when it comes to the Trinity. There is nothing in the universe that looks like or sounds like or works like the Trinity. There's nothing in the universe. God is nothing like anything in his universe. And so God is in a category by himself, and you really can't compare him to anything. But that doesn't keep us from trying. <laughs> Let's just try this. Well, God's like H2O. You know, H2O, it, it, can, it can be a solid, it can be ice, it can be a liquid, water, or it could be a gas, you know, vapor or steam. That, so, so God's like H2O. Well, no, actually what you've done is you've, you've illustrated modalism. <laughs> uh, water, H2O, can't be all those things at the same time, but God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all at the same time. Well, God is like three links in a chain. And you need all three links, and God is like three links in the chain. No, now that's tritheism. <laughs> God's not three things tied together. God is one being who exists in three persons all at the same time. So God's not a chain. Or God's like us, and we're like God. The trichotomy, we're body, soul, and spirit. You are body, soul, and spirit. So that's kind of like God. you got God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. No, that falls short too. That won't work. What happens when you die? There's a separation. Soul and spirit are absent from the body. Absent from the body. There's a separation. Now, one day at the resurrection, it will be reunited. That's a whole other story. We'll probably talk about that Easter Sunday, but that's a whole other story. But there's a, there's a separation. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, there are no separation. One being in three persons. He's inseparable. And then, well, God's like one actor playing three different roles. Again, that's, no, that's modalism. And uh, he, he, God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, if I can use the word playing or performing, three different roles all at the same time. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all at the same time. Um, God's like a three-leaf clover, and you need the three different leaves to have a three-leaf clover. You need all three leaves. Well, now you've broken God into components, right? And now you've got parts as parts. And, no, 
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God the Father is not part of God. He is God. God the Son is not part of God. He is God. God the Holy Spirit is not a part of God. He is God. So God's not like a three-leaf clover. You have the same problem with the egg. You know, God's like an egg. You know, you have, you have the yolk, you have the white, and you have the shell. No, the yolk is not the egg. It's just the egg yolk. The white's not the egg. It's just the egg white. The, the shell is not the egg. You need all three. Same, same problem. Or God's like a tree. You know, you have the leaves, you have the trunk, the roots. Or God's like an apple. You have the peeling, and you have the flesh, and you have the core. Same problem with all of those. God's like a triangle. God's like a triangle. You have three angles. And if you take out any one of those angles, you don't have a triangle anymore. Well, the problem is an angle is not a person. And the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they are persons, not angles. But it's a slightly better illustration. Or God's like the equation. God's like one cubed, one to the third power. Now, it's not one plus one plus one. That's three. That's tritheism. Nope, not three gods. There's one God. But one times one times one is what? One. I didn't know we was going to have to do math today, too. This is hard enough. One cubed is one. Well, that's clever, but God is not a mathematical equation. He's the almighty God. So, again, the problem with analogies, they all fall short. None of them work. God's not like anything, and there's nothing that's quite like God. Well, that brings us to the application. Why does this even matter? I mean, who cares? I live in the real world and I got real problems. And what does any of this have to do with me? Why is this so important? Well, let me show you why this is important. One, we're talking about God Almighty. We're talking about God. What's more important than God? He is our creator. He is our judge. He is the one with whom we have to do. We talked about that last week. One day you're going to meet God. And you better get God right. Because if you get God wrong, you're going to get everything wrong. So we better get God right. It's important to know how he has revealed himself, who he is and what he is like and how we can know him and how we can approach him. It's important just because we're talking about God. And then as followers of Jesus Christ, we know we're supposed to love God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength. And we want to know him and we want to know him better and we want to love him and we want to love him with all our hearts and, and we trust him with our life and our eternities. We, we submit to him, we follow him, we obey him. We want to know all we can about this God we know and love and trust. And this is how he has revealed himself. It's mysterious, but we need to know this because it's who he is and what he is. So we're talking about God. That makes it important. Secondly, the, the mystery of the Trinity informs our worship and our walk. As Christians, this informs our worship and our walk. It informs and inspires our worship, this, this mysterious Trinity. But think about this. We, we worship the Lord Jesus. We confess with our mouths the Lord Jesus Christ. And we worship the Lamb. But now if Jesus is not God, if there is no Trinity, and Jesus is not God, that makes us idolaters. We're worshiping a non-God. We're worshiping someone who's not God, not supposed to be worshipped. Well, that's, <laughs> that's, getting, that's going wrong real quick, isn't it? No, the Trinity and the deity of Christ, and they go hand in hand, it inspires our worship. And then it also informs our walk. You know, the Trinity is involved in every aspect of the Christian life, and the, and the Christian life involves every member of the Trinity. Think about this. We, we just spent, what, three months talking about prayer, we know that in Christ Jesus, 
God the Father becomes our Father who art in heaven. Now, he's not everybody's father. He's everybody's creator, but he becomes your father in heaven when you get saved. When you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, when you're born into the family of God, God becomes your father. It's by the spirit of adoption that we cry out, Abba, Father. And now he is our father who art in heaven. And as our heavenly father, he knows his children. He knows everything about his children. He cares about his children. He knows what we need before we ask of him. He knows how to give good gifts to his children. We can trust our father who art in heaven. God the Father. Jesus Christ, God the Son. If you know Jesus Christ, you know that He is your Lord. He is your Savior. He's our owner. He's our master. He is our king. He is our shepherd. He is our friend. All that informs the way we relate to Jesus Christ and submit to Him day by day in the Christian life, in Christian walk. The Holy Spirit. We know that if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, which is in you. The Holy Spirit indwells us. The Holy Spirit sanctifies us. The Holy Spirit enables us, equips us, and empowers us to live the Christian life and to do those things that are pleasing in His sight. You really can't separate the Christian life from the Trinity, and all of the Trinity is involved in all of the Christian life. It inspires and informs our worship and our walk. We could talk about prayer. We did for three months. But prayer, in the most technical sense... We pray to the Father in the name and the authority of the Son. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. And with the power and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. That's how we pray. So prayer, uh, the Trinity comes to bear on prayer. Salvation and evangelism, something so simple, so basic, and so important as salvation. The Trinity is involved in salvation. 1 John chapter 4 says that the Father sent the Son into the world to be the Savior of the world. The Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. The Father loved us. He proved his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The Father loved us, sent his Son to die for us. The Son emptied himself and took on the form of a servant and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. God the Son laid down his life for you and for me. A greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. He voluntarily went through the cross of Calvary for you and for me. And the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. The Bible tells us that the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of God. But it is the Holy Spirit that, that convicts us and calls us and convinces us that the gospel is true and that Christ is real and that we are sinners and we need saving. And he calls us. And, and when you repent and believe on the Lord Jesus, it's the Holy Spirit that washes you with a washing of regeneration and renewing in the Holy Spirit. And we are born of the Spirit. It's all salvation. It's been put this way, that when it comes to salvation, the Father planned it, the Son accomplished it, and now the Spirit applies it. Or we could say the Father is the source, the Son is the means, and the Spirit is the effector. Um, the doctrine of atonement. How can our sins be dealt with? We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And our sins have condemned us to an eternity from God. We have violated the justice the ways, the will, and the word of God. We are all sinners. How can that be resolved? What can we do to fix this? That's the doctrine of atonement. Well, you need the deity of Christ and the doctrine of the Trinity to have an atonement. Um, they go hand, it all goes hand in hand. Evangelism, telling somebody else about Jesus Christ. When you share the gospel, the Holy Spirit leads you 
guides you, empowers you, and equips you to give, for, for you to give the gospel, to explain someone else the good news of Jesus Christ. And as you are telling somebody about Jesus Christ, it's the Spirit of God that convicts them and convinces them and calls them and opens their eyes and ears and heart to the gospel that they might repent and believe. Here's the good news. Evangelism does not depend on you and me, on how clever we are and how slick we are and how persuasive we are and how knowledgeable we are. My friend, it's all God. You're just available. You just open your mouth and you tell people what you know about Jesus Christ. I asked him into my heart and he saved me. And if you ask him into your heart, he'll save you. He died on the cross for our sins. And my friend, the Holy Spirit will use you if you're available. He will, it's all God. And if the Spirit's not involved, it doesn't matter how persuasive and how smart and how clever and how argumentative you are. Nobody's getting saved without the Holy Spirit. So, I mean, the Trinity is involved in all of this. Here's another way. Family and church. We need to hurry. Family and church. Of all things, the Trinity informs our family life, our marriages in particular, and life in the church. In the Godhead, we have unity and diversity. In the Godhead, we have equality, but we also have a functional subordination. Watch this. 1 Corinthians 11.3. I want you to understand. Here's Paul writing. I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man and the man is the head of a woman. Talking about the man and his wife. The man is the head of his wife and God is the head of Christ. There's that functional equivalence. God the Father is the head of Christ and the husband is the head of his wife. Let me read Wayne Grudem. He says it better than I can. Here, just as the father has authority over the son in the Trinity, so the husband has authority over the wife in marriage. The husband's role is parallel to that of God the Father. The wife's role is parallel to that of God the Son. Moreover, just as father and son are equal in deity and importance and personhood, so the husband and wife are equal in humanity and importance and personhood. And although it's not explicitly mentioned in Scripture, the gift of children within marriage coming from both the father and the mother and subject to the authority of both father and mother is analogous to the relationship of the Holy Spirit to the father and son in Trinity. Isn't that interesting? So God says, here's the pattern. Here's the pattern for your marriage. The husband is the head of the wife. And, and the parents are over their children. Well, that's just sexist. Well, that's chauvinist. That's patriarchy. No, that's the Godhead. The father and the son and the Holy Spirit. Same thing as church. We can bring this to church. In the church, we are many members, but one body. We are members of one another. There is unity and diversity in the body of Christ. We are a diverse group, aren't we? Man, we're different. You know, somebody said, we're, ours is a strange and unique relationship. You're strange and I'm unique. <laughs> you know, this, I mean, the, the church, you just look around, this is a hot mess. I mean, we come from all different kinds of backgrounds and problems and experiences and opinions and what a mess. And yet we are one in the body of Christ. One body, one spirit, one Lord. Unity and diversity. There is equality. We're all the same at the foot of the cross. There's no difference. We're all the same at the foot of the cross. And yet there is, there's authority. There are roles even in the church. So all this comes to bear even in the church. Let me close with Millard Erickson. He says this. It appears that Tertullian was right. Tertullian was an early church leader. It appears that Tertullian was right in affirming that the doctrine of the Trinity must be divinely revealed, not humanly constructed. 
It's so absurd from a human standpoint, no one would have invented it. We do not hold the doctrine of the Trinity because it's self-evident or logically cogent. We hold it because God has revealed that this is what he is like. As someone has said of this doctrine, try to explain it and you'll lose your mind. Try to deny it and you'll lose your soul. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, God, we, we thank you for the mystery of the Trinity. And we stand in awe of you. We, we worship you because of who you are and what you are. Lord, we don't understand it. We, we accept it by faith. This is how you have revealed yourself to us. And Lord, we just stand amazed. It's something so basic and so fundamental and yet so grand and majestic and mysterious, impenetrable, incomprehensible as the Trinity. God in one being and three persons. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to live in light of this truth and that we would bring it home in, in our Christian walk and in our families, in the church and all these other ways that we see it applied in our lives. Lord, we, I pray that the one who's never trusted you as Lord and Savior, that today they would see and hear and know they need Jesus Christ. That they would know that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. And that your Holy Spirit would open their eyes to see the light of the gospel. And that they might repent and believe even today. Take charge of this time of decision. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.